I looked up his criminal record, and it is extensive. Um, going back to the 80s, even, um, a lot of activity in the early 2000s. And then, as you mentioned, at one point it stops. In 2012 is the last uh, criminal charge that I can find on his record. And then, of course, he goes missing in 2017. Would that be weird um, to you in any way or unusual that someone is accused of stealing a very valuable custom motorcycle that's, you know, going to be instantly recognized um, after a period of five years of no criminal activity? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And, you know, the burglary was investigated by the uh, sheriff's department and it didn't appear that they had any leads as to who would have been involved in it. So once again, we don't know how he comes up, how he comes in possession of this motorcycle. We just don't know. Because it wouldn't appear that he would be a guy that just decided to go out and do burglaries. But somehow he ends up with this motorcycle. From the Blade, this is Code 18 Unsolved, Season 1, Episode 4, Father and Sons. Yeah, Code 18 just references the radio code that we use when we describe a dead body. Alvin's disappearance was in any way related to a stolen motorcycle on his property, then it begs the question, why was it there to begin with? Would Alvin steal a motorcycle? Would someone else bring a stolen motorcycle to his house? Why would he conceal it? You just heard Detective Goodlett say that it seemed like Alvin wasn't the type to commit such a crime. At least, it didn't seem in his character anymore. And I say any more because Alvin does have an extensive former criminal history, mostly involving drugs and physical violence, but also for theft, receiving stolen property, and unauthorized use of property. In his 63 years, Alvin racked up 84 charges in Toledo Municipal Court for anything from traffic infractions to domestic violence, theft, and drug possession, his drug of choice being mainly heroin. 23 of those charges related to traffic infractions. Another 31 cases were dropped, nollied, or removed from the docket usually after he repeatedly failed to appear in court. In the remaining charges of disorderly conduct, domestic violence, resisting arrest, violating protection orders, negligent assault, petty theft, or drug possession, Alvin never once admitted his guilt. He has only ever pleaded no contest, meaning he didn't admit to the crimes but accepted whatever finding by the judge, usually guilty. Or he used an Alfred's plea, which technically is a guilty plea, but the person maintains their innocence, recognizing that the evidence is likely to lead to a conviction at trial. 
three of his charges were bound over to Lucas County Common Pleas Court, where he was convicted for domestic violence, possession of heroin, and trafficking heroin. That trafficking charge came in 2002. Alvin was found in possession of $3,300 worth of heroin, $500 worth of marijuana, $16,000 in cash, a loaded semi-automatic handgun, and stolen property, including jewelry, collectibles, power tools, and electronics. Those court records indicate Alvin's criminal history started in the 1980s, at which point he would have been in his mid-20s, but his family says his propensity for trouble went back much farther. Cheryl Bonk is the oldest of the five Darrow siblings. Alvin is the second youngest. She remembers him constantly getting into fights or wrestling matches, not only with the siblings, but kids at school. Much of it early on, she recalls, was over his nickname, Hopper. He'd earned the nickname at birth. The nurse actually gave him that name. She would bring him in, and he would be just... um all crunched up like a little grasshopper. So she, the nurse would say, here's your little hopper. So what did my mom do? She continued that name. <laughs> to his family, the nickname was endearing. But to kids at school, it was fodder for teasing and turned Alvin into a fighter very young. He had to defend his name. You know, he had a few fights because of his name <laughs> early on, you know, because... They would just tease him like, you know, who's got that kind of name, really, and who does, <laughs> you know. But we just, I guess because my dad's name was Al, um, we just never called him Al. He just, he liked Hopper. It wasn't until he got into drugs, though, that Cheryl says things really became bad. Alvin first went to prison at age 27. It was 1981, and he'd been convicted for breaking and entering and an unspecified drug law violation, according to Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction Records. He was sentenced to serve up to five years, but he was released on parole after six months. Immediately, fractures began to form in the family. Alvin's siblings felt he was a blemish on the Darrow family's good name. See, Alvin Darrow Sr., after whom the son is named, was an upstanding member of Toledo society. When he died on November 1, 2012, at the age of 87, his obituary sung his many praises. He served in the army during World War II as a medic. He married Rose Darrow, and they were together for 65 years. He was a member of the Ottawa River Yacht Club and served as Commodore in 1978 and he founded Darrow's Wheel Alignment and Brake Service, a business which is still operating today under the direction of his oldest son, Ron Darrow. And then there was Hopper, in and out of jail and on drugs. And when we first found out he was doing drugs, it was just devastating. I mean, my mom and dad, they were you know, a real big part of the community. They belonged to Ottawa River Yacht Club. They had thousands of friends. And my dad had the business. Um, he, he never, ever got a ticket. He never got put in jail. 
I mean, he was just the most outstanding man and father anybody could ever want. He was just wonderful. And then to know that his namesake <laughs> was in trouble just all the time, it was <clears throat> pretty heartbreaking. So we were all just really devastated. By then, Alvin had already had his oldest son, Jeremy Darrow. Jeremy was seven years old when his father went to prison for the first time. Then came the second child, Tim Darrow, roughly three years later by a different woman. But Alvin still wasn't ready to be a family man. Within three years, he was back in prison on a theft charge. From then on through 2011, Alvin was in and out of jail or prison on a slew of charges, which further estranged him from his children. Jeremy and Tim never really had a relationship with him. Not a good one, anyway. Even in adult life, as they were trying to repair the relationship and lived close to each other and boated together, it was still a struggle, Jeremy said. There was lingering resentment that seemed to bubble over when they were all together. It was a lot violent at times. The times where we were all three in the same place, you know, that's why I just tried to not be in the same place at the same time, the three of us, because it would just get, it would just get loud. Why? Every time. I don't want to talk about that. Alvin also didn't have a good relationship with his siblings. They were constantly fighting. Alvin had a temper, but his sister, Cheryl, admits that there was some underlying animosity there, too. All of the other siblings had respectable jobs and reputations, and then there was Alvin, messing up again and again. She criticized that her parents always seemed to come to his rescue, bailing him out of jail, setting him up with places to stay after prison, buying him new furniture, and holding jobs for him at the family business, despite his tardiness. And Hopper, of course, had my dad's name, so that caused a little bit of friction later in life <clears throat> because he was given a lot of privileges none of us had. And my dad just, and we always knew that he was the favorite, you know, because, number one, he never got married, and he was always in trouble. I mean, he was like, <laughs> even as a little kid, well, he would just, you know, wrestle with his brothers, which is normal, nothing wrong with that. But even when he would get, I mean, in in trouble, some kind of trouble, my dad would get him out of it. They were good at getting him out of anything he did. The tension seemed to come to a head in 2011 when their parents' health was declining and the siblings started discussing how to split up the estate. Their father had cancer and their mother had Alzheimer's. They needed help around the house. Cheryl said she asked Hopper, who lived just down the block from them, to step in, but she accused him of being late or not showing up at all. Then, he punched her in the eye during an argument. She hired their parents' professional help and got a restraining order to keep Alvin away from them. That year, Alvin also was arrested for pushing down his sister, Karen Sue Omler, though she never pursued charges, and for twice violating a protection order to stay away from his younger brother, Robbie Darrow. But when their father, Alvin Darrow Sr., died in 2012, something in Hopper seemed to change. 
he'd give you the shirt off his back. You know, he was was a changed person. He was a different person than he was when he was younger. Um, more respectful. You know, didn't want trouble. Alvin's last real criminal charge is from July of 2012. His father died that November. And court records show no trouble followed, save for a traffic ticket in 2014 for having a cracked windshield and driving without a license. For the first time in his life, Jeremy said his father became predictable and reliable. He loved motorcycles and riding, so they went on trips to Florida. They took their boats out together. Alvin was trying to have a relationship with Jeremy's children. He had money, multiple homes, three Harley-Davidson motorcycles, and other expensive toys to play with. And he still had his parents' estate money coming his way. Things were going well. Which is why it doesn't make sense to anyone who knew Alvin that after being crime-free for the last five years, he would turn around in 2017 and steal a motorcycle. Does it seem likely that he would start up again with the stolen motorcycle? No, not at all. Because he turned his life around. Absolutely. Can you speak about why? What changed? Probably his kids. You know, not being part of the family. I mean, you can only get in trouble for so long. You know, you go to prison, you miss your family. You know, he was 60. You know, that changes too. He's not a kid anymore. From the police's perspective, Detective Goodlett agreed. Alvin seemed to be well-liked by friends and his neighbors. He wasn't in trouble with the law. By all accounts, he was a good guy. So again, Detective Goodlett said it didn't fit that Alvin would suddenly decide on a whim to steal a motorcycle. So just uh, speaking from your experience then, of course it's possible that Alvin could have been committing crimes between 2012 and 2017 for which he was not caught. That's possible. Does that seem likely in your opinion? No. No. Because um, he seemed to get caught before. And it just doesn't seem likely that he was doing some type of crimes that he, you know, was under the radar. It just doesn't seem possible. It's possible, not likely. Since Alvin's son, Tim Darrow, was living in the house on Dean Avenue where the motorcycle was being kept in the garage, I feel compelled to also mention here that there's no reason to believe that Tim stole the motorcycle either. No one has ever been arrested in the burglary at the Wileys, and Detective Goodlett says their lead suspect at the time, neither of which was a Darrow, has since died. So who stole the motorcycle is a question that will probably never be fully answered. We've never gotten anything definitive on how either one of them came in possession of it or who came into possession of it first. We just know that it's there. We know who it belongs to. We know that it was taken in a burglary. Um, we don't know who's involved in that burglary, and we don't have... I have no evidence to, to say that Tim was involved or that Alan was involved. i got no evidence to say who was involved at all in that burglary. But maybe we don't need to know who stole the motorcycle to answer the question, what happened to Alvin? A better question might be, once he had that motorcycle... What was he planning to do with it?
At one point, both of Alvin's sons seemed poised to follow in their father's footsteps. They both seemed to inherit his temper. You know, we were all young. You know, we all like to get in trouble at some point. You know, we were all men. You know, men get violent. I mean, you know, was Tim violent? Yeah, but he's in his, he was in his, you know, early 30s. There was a difference between 30 and 45 and 60. You know, there's different stages, but yeah, I mean. And what do you mean by violent? Just ready to fight it, and you know, at the drop of a hat. You know, any of us were. Jeremy would spend six years in prison in Pennsylvania for aggravated assault. When he was 21 years old, he punched a man unconscious, fracturing several bones in the man's face. But he hasn't been in trouble since. Tim, though, Jeremy's younger brother, has been in and out of trouble his entire life, much like his father. He has 74 charges in Toledo Municipal Court for things like unauthorized use of property, theft, criminal damaging, disorderly conduct, criminal trespassing, aggravated menacing, carrying concealed weapons, possession of drug paraphernalia, assault, DUI, and a slew of traffic violations, about 46 of them. He also served prison time for obstructing official business and failing to comply with the order of a police officer. Tim has also repeatedly been accused of punching men and women in the face, hitting one person with a golf club, and threatening to kill two others with a handgun. But all charges in those cases were ultimately dismissed. Court records noted victims did not show up to testify against him, which could have contributed to the cases being dropped. Today, Jeremy owns a tiling business. I'm hard-pressed to find anyone who knows him who can say a bad word about him. They call him respectful, successful, and a great guy, emphasizing great. Tim, on the other hand, continues to struggle. He doesn't have a permanent address, but he works as a mechanic. When I ask people about him, their voice is heavy with sympathy. But even he seemed to mellow out some. His last listed charges include public intoxication in 2019 and a slew of traffic violations for driving without a license, including in February of 2020. History seems to suggest, though, that Tim remains the more aggressive of the two brothers, and the person he seemed to take his anger out on most was his father. Jeremy was able to have a good relationship with Alvin, later in life after 2012 when Alvin appeared to leave drugs and crime behind, but Tim never did. Friends and family all say that Tim resented his father for his tough upbringing and blamed his father for his mother's death. Tim's mother, Renee Mullins, died in 2007. Officially, the coroner report lists the cause of death as natural from hypertensive cardiovascular disease, or in layman's terms, years of high blood pressure which weakened her heart. But Tim always suspected it had more to do with drug use. Her autopsy report says she had a recent needle puncture with bruising on her right inner elbow, and a toxicology screening found oxycodone, alprazolam, which is a drug used to treat anxiety disorders, think Xanax, and venlafaxine, which is an antidepressant. Even though his parents weren't together at the time, Tim always blamed his father for introducing his mother to drugs in the first place. 
With his mother going through her own struggles in life and later dying young and his father in and out of jail, Tim transitioned a lot between caregivers and going it alone. Even after Alvin turned his life around and tried to give Tim a stable home, Tim seemed to feel that Alvin owed him more for lost time and stability growing up. And Hopper tried to oblige. He bought Tim a trailer home to live in with his two daughters and was in the process of buying the house on Dean Avenue, which Tim was living in. But their problems persisted. They're always fighting. You know, it's always something with the two of them. And I don't know what Tim expected of his dad. I guess he thought his dad owed him these things. So sometimes he wouldn't go to work or pay his rent. Because <clears throat> he figured, well, it's my dad's house. I don't have to do that. So that could have caused a lot of fights between the two of them. Cheryl's description of a lot of fights is perhaps an understatement. Tim was known to beat up on his father. None of their episodes are documented in police reports, but everyone saw the evidence. Why would he be afraid of Tim? Because Tim's always beating him up, hitting him all the time, be in the car, slug him, reach over and slug him for no reason at all, grab him out of the car window and slug him in the face, push him down. Not too long before this, he came over the fence and hit him with a two-by-four when he got off his motorcycle and pushed his motorcycle over. Just angry at him all the time. That's Peggy Deskamps, a close friend of Alvin's who lived just around the corner. Did you ever see them fight like that? Did you ever see him hit his father? Oh, yeah, quite a few times. He, when he lived down the street, he tore up the yard down, everybody's yard. I don't know how he didn't get arrested for that stuff. Break in the house, tear up the house. I mean, tear everything up in his house and break everything. Tim would just, if he, Hopper didn't do what he wanted, he would freak out all the time. Hit him, call him all kinds of names, break stuff. I mean, constantly. And Hopper would always be doing stuff for him, trying to help him. Since Hopper had become so close with Rocky Conley, it made Rocky party to some of those fights as well. He mostly witnessed screaming matches between Hopper and Tim. Verbally, Hopper always gave it back in kind, Rocky said. But he never got physical. Only Tim did. Corin Lopez saw the physical abuse. She has lived in the neighborhood with the Darrows for 20 years and even rented from Alvin's parents for a time. Then Alvin moved into that home and she bought the one next door, making them neighbors. Today, she's living in Alvin's parents' home, which is where he was living when he went missing. But back when they were neighbors, she observed firsthand how violent he and Tim's relationship could be. You know, they were always fighting, always fighting. And I had to call the police a couple of times because um, I could hear them just beating the crap out of them. You know, and then he, I would, a couple of times I'd see him coming outside and he's at his red around his neck and Tim's yelling and he's running in the house and running out. I said, man, you know, he's going to kill this guy. <laughs> You know, the couple of times I had to stop him from choking him. You Can know. you be specific? Who are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. Tim, his son. His son. I would always have to call the police on his son um, beating up his father. Corinne corrected that she never physically saw Tim's hands around his father's neck in a choking manner, but she assumes that's what happened based on the aftermath. When their fights got really bad, she'd yell in the house that she was calling the police. 
Tim would take off, and Alvin would emerge with injuries consistent with being choked. So, did you ever see Tim's, like, hands around his father's neck? No, I seen marks around his neck, the red marks, you know. And you assumed that he'd been choked? Yeah, because he had them like this. You know, I seen him have them like this. I said, I caught the police, you know, I caught the police, you know. And then he must have got scared and took off. Every time I told him I called the police, he would take off. Some of Rocky's observations seem to support Corinne's assumptions of the abuse. He recalls Hopper once coming to the marina, still panting from a wrestling match with Tim. His neck red. He was like, squeezing me, Rocky. He grabbed me and started twisting my skin. Like, and he'd show me, like, right under his neck right here. Like, he had grabbed him and, like, squeezed, and it was, like, purple. You know, he had, you can tell a grown man just grabbed him. Neither Rocky nor Hopper ever called the police after one of Tim's fights. Hopper would say he'd been to jail and prison, and he didn't want to send his son there. But on numerous occasions, Rocky said Hopper told him that the fights were becoming so violent that he feared something might happen to him someday. The turmoil seemed never-ending. In 2016, Cheryl Darrow said her brother showed up to their mother's funeral with a black eye and bruised face. He told her he'd been in a fight with Tim. And not long before Hopper's disappearance, he had a black eye again. This time, it was his friend Tony Wheatley who noticed. Tony had known the Darrow family since childhood, but he'd become close with Alvin, who he knows exclusively as Hopper, the last decade before Hopper disappeared. Close enough to call him a friend. The two would buy and sell property from each other, and they hung out together at Tony's automotive shop nearly every day. Tony also knew Tim, who was friends with his son, Alan Wheatley. So Tony says he was hanging out with Hopper one day when he noticed that his friend had on his sunglasses something anyone who knew Hopper would immediately recognize is out of character. See, Hopper hated when people talked to him with their sunglasses on. He found it disrespectful, so he always made it a point to take off his own around others. Except on this day. Hopper had on a pair of dark glasses and I was working on a 1989 police interceptor Harley-Davidson that I bought from Hopper. And he's helping me, and I looked over at him and caught him out of the blue and snatched the glasses off his face. And he had two huge black eyes. And I'm like, hey, Hop, what the hell happened to you? You know what I mean? He goes, oh, man, me and Tim got into it, and he hit me, and blah, blah, blah. Tim and him are like, Two peas in a pod, you know what I'm saying? Tim ends up being just like Hopper. Just like Hopper in his younger years, maybe, not in his 60s. Time had mellowed Alvin, along with a heart condition for which he took medication daily. He'd slowed down significantly, but he maintained his fighting spirit and booming voice. When he was mad, everyone heard it. And those character traits are the very things that make Alvin's family suspicious about Tim's account of bikers with guns coming to take Alvin in revenge for stealing a motorcycle. Not one of them believes Alvin would have stolen the motorcycle in the first place. But they do believe that had he been confronted about it, he would not have gone quietly. 
If some stranger was threatening Hopper, the whole neighborhood would have heard him putting up a fight, Jeremy told me. But none of his neighbors reported hearing yelling, revving motorcycles, or anything else unusual in the area that day. That's why I say he didn't just, you know, walk away or get pushed away, because he would have been loud about it. It was all pretty quiet. You mean if men showed up on bikes threatening him? He was making a lot of noise, for sure. The only fight that has been confirmed on the day Alvin went missing is between Alvin and his son, Tim, reportedly over the fact that Alvin had the stolen motorcycle. Remember, Tim says his father was the one who brought the bike to his house and stored it in his garage, and they fought about it around 4.25 p.m. when Tim took a video of Alvin reaching for the motorcycle. This makes Tim the last known person to have seen Alvin before he went missing. And we have to say the last known person because if a group of bikers did show up and take Alvin, they've never been identified. This alone leads to natural speculation about Tim. What really happened between the father and son that evening? And what, if anything, could it have to do with Alvin's disappearance? The last place he was was in my brother's backyard. He never left my brother's yard. So... (laughs) Obviously, a big piece missing from this story so far has been Tim. His memory of what happened between them that day and what happened to his father after. So I sought Tim out to interview him about his side of the story. I found him at the mechanic shop where he works and I asked him to share what he remembers, and specifically, what he remembers about that final fight with his father. Now, recall last episode, you heard Detective Goodlett's summary of this argument, which was pretty sparse. He didn't want to discuss Tim's statements in any detail, but he did say that Tim never mentioned hitting his father or seeing him bleed, nothing that would account for Alvin's blood being on the motorcycle. Three years later, when I talked to Tim, that memory has changed. You say that you fought with your dad over this bike. What does that mean? I punched him, he punched the bike. I was bleeding, he was, I think we were both bleeding. I never saw him again after that. Next week, we hear exclusively from Tim. What was his relationship like with his father? Why was his father bleeding during their fight? And what important details might he recall about these bikers who may have taken Alvin? This remains an open investigation. If you have any information about this case or any other unsolved homicides, call Toledo Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111. Callers can remain anonymous and there may be reward money. Help put this Code 18 to rest. And help spread the word about the podcast by giving us a five-star review and recommending us to your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code 18. Code 18 is reported and written by me, your host, Caitlin Durbin, for The Blade. Phil Kaplan is our producer, with original art and theme music by Danielle Gamble. 
Additional original music provided by Joel Roberts. Editing assistance comes from Blade editors Michael Walton, Michael Bryce, and Kim Bates. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin Durbin. I'm a Blade reporter and host of this podcast. If you're enjoying it, I invite you to subscribe to The Blade and support my colleagues and the reliable journalism that makes this work possible. The Blade has been reporting on Toledo's history since before the city itself was established. We are the newspaper of record. Go to ToledoBlade.com and click subscribe.